You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 433 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all will recall with the last episode, we got started on the story of the storming of Missionary Ridge by the Federals on November 25th, 1863. We said that there was confusion on the Confederate side about whether in the event of a major Yankee assault, they were to stay put and defend the rifle pits at the base of the ridge, or whether they were to retreat up the slope to the crest. And then there was also confusion on the federal side, because once they captured the rebel rifle pits, apparently some units believed they were supposed to continue the attack right up the slopes, while other units thought they were supposed to halt there at the foot of Missionary Ridge. But regardless, circumstances quickly decided the matter because as the Yankee soldiers arrived at the foot of the ridge and took possession of the Confederate works, they quickly realized the captured rifle pits there were no prize, but rather a potential death trap. An officer in a Minnesota regiment later recalled, quote, When we got possession of the first line, we found that it was only knee-high, and not protection at all against the musketry and canister that rained down upon us from the crest of the ridge. As musket fire and blast of canister swept the ground at the base of the ridge, many of the federal field officers at this point dismounted and set their horses loose, most of which galloped off in fright to the rear. However, Colonel Aquila Wiley of the 41st Ohio noticed his terrified mount had remained nearby. As Wiley jumped to his feet to shoo the animal away, he was hit in the leg and his knee was shattered. The old Prussian soldier Brigadier General August Willick remembered, quote, It was evident to everyone that to stay in this position would be certain destruction. Like Willick, the other officers and soldiers of the Army of the Cumberland quickly realized they were in a terrible predicament. Most of them were veterans of two years of bloody battles, and they needed no one to tell them that they either had to go forward or die where they stood. A Hoosier in the 79th Indiana said, quote, Nothing could live in or about the captured line of field works. There was no time or opportunity for deliberations. Something must be done, and it must be done quickly. 
And so, some federal officers, believing that their orders all along had been to continue the assault assault up the slopes to the crest of the ridge, allowed their men to catch their breath, and then ordered them forward. Other officers, sensing the trap they were in, on their own accord, ordered their men to advance. Whatever the case, the Army of the Cumberland, seemingly as one, began an incredible, fully unauthorized surge up the slopes toward the crest of Missionary Ridge. From the enemy's lower lines now comes a storm of bullets, and the air is filled with every sound of battle. The noise is terrible. Our artillery is exploding shells along the top of the ridge, and a caisson is seen to burst off to the right. Now all feeling seems to have changed to one of determination. A terrific cheer rolls along the line. Not a rifle has yet been fired by the assaulting column. The quick step has been changed to the double quick. Another cheer in the enemy's first line of works at the base of the ridge is ours, together with many of his troops. Shelter is sought on the reverse side of the enemy's works, but the fire from the hilltop makes protection impossible. The bursting projectiles seem to compress the air, and one's head feels as if bound with iron bands. Unable to return the enemy's fire, the delay drives the men to desperation. To remain is to be annihilated. To retreat is as dangerous as to advance. Here and there a man leaps over the works and starts toward the hilltop. Small squads follow. Then someone gives the command, Forward, after a number of men began to advance. The cry forward is repeated along the line, and the apparent impossibility is undertaken. Lieutenant William Morgan, 23rd Kentucky Infantry, Hastings Brigade, Army of the Cumberland. That quote was from Lieutenant Morgan in Hastings Brigade, which was in Woods Division. As the men of Wood's division, to his left, started to scramble up the slopes, Phil Sheridan quickly saw that truly this was the only option that made sense. Sheridan rode up and down the lines of his own division, calling out, As soon as you get your wind, men, we will go straight to the top of that hill. Then, spotting a knot of Confederate officers at the crest of the ridge, Sheridan, who always had a flair for the dramatic, pulled out a flask and waved it in the direction of the rebels, shouting, Here's to you! As if in response, an enemy shell landed nearby, throwing dirt on Sheridan, who grumbled, That was damn ungenerous. I shall take those guns for that. In no time, as if by a common impulse all along the line, the men of Baird's and Wood's divisions to the north and Sheridan's and Johnson's divisions to the south were moving up the slopes. Clustered around their regimental colors, the soldiers of the Army of the Cumberland scrambled upward in a long, irregular line of blue. Ulysses S. Grant, standing on Orchard Knob, could hardly believe what he was seeing. He watched as the soldiers of the Army of the Cumberland started to move out toward the crest of Missionary Ridge, 
which was defended by thousands of Confederate infantry and dozens of cannon. Just a short time before, he had watched Sherman's troops tumble back down the slopes at the north end of the ridge after their attack met with failure at Tunnel Hill, and now the likelihood of another disaster unfolding right before his eyes left Grant both stunned and angry. According to Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Fullerton of Granger's staff, Grant turned to George Thomas and asked angrily, who ordered those men up that ridge? To which Thomas replied, I don't know. I did not. Turning to Gordon Granger, George Thomas asked him if he'd ordered them up the slopes. Granger said, no, they started up without orders. Then, as if by way of explanation or excuse, he added, when those fellows get started, all hell can't stop them. Ulysses S. Grant was not amused. According to Fullerton, quote, General Grant said something to the effect that somebody would suffer if it did not turn out well, and then, turning, stoically watched the ridge. He did not give any further orders. At this point, Ulysses S. Grant and the others on Orchard Knob were mere bystanders. Now it was up to the men of the Army of the Cumberland. As we said before, Grant had little faith in either George Thomas or the soldiers of the Army of the Cumberland. But here, in a strange twist of fate, Grant's reluctance to use Thomas's soldiers had backfired because now victory or defeat depended upon them and the outcome of their unauthorized charge up Missionary Ridge. As Ulysses S. Grant and George Thomas and the others on Orchard Knob watched, the men of the Army of the Cumberland pushed on, ever upward, step by step, up the slopes of Missionary Ridge. As they moved up the slope, they weren't in line of battle, but instead advanced upward in small, V-shaped clusters, following their color bearers. Major John McClenahan of the 15th Ohio said, quote, each regiment advanced, slightly V-shaped, with the colors at the apex. The going was mostly slow. Missionary Ridge's lower levels were covered with downed timber felled by the Confederates. Scattered about were patches of heavy brush. Halfway up, there was a belt of uncut trees, then the ridge's upper reaches were open and covered with loose rock and shale. At some points, the slope ascended at a 45-degree angle. Ravines, some deep and tangled with underbrush, cut into the face of the ridge at several points, creating difficult obstacles to climb past. Leading the charge up the slopes, at the apex of their inverted Vs, the Federal color bearers were prime targets. In the 36th Illinois, six color bearers were shot down in succession. In the 24th Wisconsin, the regiment's adjutant, Lieutenant Arthur MacArthur, took the colors from the out-of-breath Sergeant John Borth, who, at 44, was one of the older men in the unit. MacArthur, the 18-year-old son of a Milwaukee judge, 
dashed ahead with the colors for the final push to the crest of the ridge. Years later, MacArthur described the moment to his son Douglas, quote, While I was carrying the flag, a whole dose of canister went through it, tearing it in a frightful manner. Although the flag was shredded, MacArthur sustained only, quote, one scratch through the rim of my hat. MacArthur and his flag reached the crest as part of a seemingly unstoppable flood of soldiers in blue. He was awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions that day. The citation stated that MacArthur, quote, seized the colors of his regiment at a critical moment and planted them on the captured works on the crest of Missionary Ridge. Just as a side note, but in 1942, during the Second World War, 78 years after the storming of Missionary Ridge, Arthur MacArthur's son Douglas was awarded the Medal of Honor. The MacArthur's joined Teddy Roosevelt and Theodore Roosevelt Jr. as the only father-son duos to be awarded the Medal of Honor. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. The lines of blue kept steadily on until the rifle pits at the foot of the ridge was in our possession. I remember we got the impression, somehow, that we were to stop there, but the firing from the crest of the ridge above us was terrific, and, as if by impulse, the boys in the ranks began to climb the ridge, shouting, Come on, boys, as we went, 
without any orders, so far as I know, excepting our own. Farther up and to the right, I saw a man waving a United States flag. While looking up at the flag, a rebel musket ball, evidently fired from a point to our left, struck me just below the jawbone, passing through my neck. Two streams of blood caused me to believe an artery was opened and that I would soon bleed to death. The first impulse was to get back down the ridge as far as possible before I should fall from loss of blood. This I did and reached the rifle pits at the foot of the ridge. An awful thirst came over me, and in my frantic efforts to get at the canteen strapped under my waist, I cut the canteen strap and got the water to my lips. That water was the best drink I had ever taken, and I thought perhaps it was my last. There was no fear of eternity, which it seemed to me was very near. The thought of the possible failure of the assault and that my body would be left within the enemy's lines was worrying me more than anything else just at that time. After resting a few minutes, I found that the blood was not flowing so freely. In the pocket of my blouse was a silk handkerchief, a present from my mother. By pressing the soft silk into the wounds, the flow of blood almost ceased. I was the happiest boy in the army. I started back toward Orchard Knob to find a surgeon. During one of the frequent halts for a brief rest, I saw the flags go over the works along the crest and heard the cheers of my comrades and presto change, the thunder of the enemy's guns ceased. Private Samuel McNeil, 31st Ohio Infantry, Turchin's Brigade, Army of the Cumberland. I had my guns in position on the extreme left of the battalion and was giving them fits when a shower of balls came in upon us from the left. Looking in that direction, I observed heavy columns in a line perpendicular to ours, 100 yards to our left flank. Soon as I saw the stars and stripes flashing along the line, I swung my guns around and brought them to bear on the flanking column. But the cannoneers ran the two left pieces too near each other to fire, and before I could get the guns apart, Jackson's brigade came rushing along through our battalion in utter panic. My men stood steady as veterans, but in vain. The infantry rushed over us pell-mell, and we could do nothing. Finding our support gone, I determined to retire fighting, but the ridge was too rough to manage the pieces by hand, and I could not get the horses up to the guns, so I ordered the limbers away. I am proud of the conduct of my men, and believe they would have stood with me to the guns until we were bayoneted. I left only when valor was in vain. I lost two guns and one limber, and had several men wounded, and have myself a slight wound. A mini-ball struck me on the shoulder, cutting a great hole through my coat and shirt, and bruising the flesh. It stung me some, but did not disable the arm. We lost much by this mortifying affair. Everybody thinks our infantry did not stand up squarely. This thing never happened to Confederate soldiers before. God grant that it may never happen again. Lieutenant Andrew Neal, Marion Light Artillery, Army of Tennessee.
To the Confederates atop Missionary Ridge, it seemed that half the Federal Army was coming up the slopes at them. Nonetheless, by all odds, the Yankees ought to have been slaughtered, and some of their officers thought that was just what would happen to them. For example, Division Commander Thomas Wood later admitted, quote, I expected the rebels would rise up, pour their fire into us, leap over their works, and charge us with their bayonets. Wood feared that if the enemy did that, then such a counterattack would likely, quote, sweep us all back. However, for a strange combination of reasons, the Federals' charge up Missionary Ridge, against all odds, ended up succeeding. One reason was the nature of the terrain here, because the folds and creases in the slope often provided sheltered avenues of approach for at least part of the way up. The very steepness of the slope worked for the Federals by frequently providing dead ground, where, sheltered from rebel fire, the attackers could rest and catch their breath before making another rush upward. And in most places, the Federal soldiers enjoyed substantial immunity from artillery fire because the rebel cannoneers couldn't depress the muzzles of their guns far enough to shoot down the slope of the ridge. Some of the rebel disadvantages were clearly self-inflicted and the result of poor planning by Confederate officers. The most obvious of these was the division of troops between the crest and the base of the ridge and the confusion over when the units manning the rifle pits were supposed to retreat. In some places, rebel soldiers fleeing the rifle pits were as little as 50 yards in front of their Yankee pursuers, effectively blocking the fire of their comrades up on the crest of the ridge. Even when the men from the rifle pits arrived with a bit more of a lead, they were usually no help in defending the crest, since sprinting hundreds of yards up the slope, fueled by adrenaline, left most of them gasping and retching when they reached the top. Another self-inflicted Confederate disadvantage was the specific placement of the defensive line at the top of the ridge. As you guys will recall, it was hurriedly laid out at the last minute, and it ended up running along the geographical crest of the ridge, i.e. the highest point, rather than the military crest, which is the highest point that gives you the best field of fire down the hillside. For those of you not familiar with this distinction, the military crest is usually some distance down the slope from the geographical crest. The most direct result of the Confederates' error here was to provide an especially ample zone of dead ground just below the crest, where the Federal attackers could pause in relative safety before making their final rush. That's all to say that while Confederate Division Commander Patrick Claiborne made skillful use of the terrain at Tunnel Hill, the same could not be said for the rebel dispositions along the central portion of Missionary Ridge, where the faulty positioning of the defensive line along the geographical crest allowed the terrain to aid the attackers. However, none of that meant the Federals' task was easy or their success was guaranteed. They didn't enjoy an overwhelming superiority of numbers, and they were, after all, climbing a steep slope in the face of the enemy. 
getting up to the top of the ridge required no small amount of courage and motivation, and a fair amount of tactical savvy as well. As we mentioned before, there were no traditional lines of battle here, but instead the men of the Army of the Cumberland made use of every available piece of cover, spreading out and moving fast over exposed ground and crowding into sheltered gullies that led them steadily upward. A federal officer watching from Orchard Knob thought the attackers' constantly shifting alignment reminded him of a large flock of migrating birds as they wheeled and shifted and grouped first one way and then another. As we said, most regiments moved upward in an inverted V formation with the colors at the apex. Afterward, arguments raged for years about which federal unit first went over the top, but the honor is generally given to Wood's division for breaching the works held by Colonel William Tucker's Mississippians. Nevertheless, just who was the very first to break the Confederate line can never be known with certainty, since it seems to have been broken more or less simultaneously in at least half a dozen places, and practically everywhere else not long after that. Quite as astonishing as the Federal's attack right up the slopes was how quickly outright disaster overtook the rebels. In many spots, resistance collapsed in an instant. Even when some troops did attempt to stand fast, they also ended up panicking and running when they realized the units on their flanks were gone. Up toward the northern end of the attack, in the 14th Corps sector, Vanderveers and Turchin's brigades piled onto the crest. From there, the Confederate line unraveled rapidly all the way up to within a mile of Claiborne's position at Tunnel Hill. William Hardy had a horse shot from under him as he desperately tried to cobble together a line that could prevent the collapse of that whole end of the army. In the south-central portion of the ridge, the Confederates had gotten off to a better start. The sector in which Bragg's headquarters were located was held by William Bates' division, and it appeared that Bates' men had hurled back the Federal attackers on their front. But in reality, the Yankees here belonged to Sherman's division, and they were victims of mixed-up orders that had called them back after they'd started up the slopes. Bragg was riding along Bates' line congratulating the men when he got word that the line further to the right had gone to pieces. He had no sooner directed Bates to detach a brigade and restore the situation when it appeared that the left had disintegrated as well, and the Federals, Sheridan's men of course, were coming back up the hill at the front of Bates' line. After that, Bates' position also collapsed, as did A.P. Stewart's division, which was the next in line to the south, and disaster overtook the rebels in all directions. Braxton Bragg tried to personally stop the rout, but it was no use. He admitted, quote, a panic which I had never before witnessed seemed to have seized upon officers and men, and each seemed to be struggling for his personal safety, regardless of his duty. For an expanse of a mile and a half along the crest of Missionary Ridge, a huge gap now yawned in the Confederate center, right where the rebel position had been considered the strongest and all but impregnable. 
The men of the Army of the Cumberland watched in amazement as the Confederate defense disintegrated into chaos, and then they raised cheer after cheer as the rebels fled in panic. Atop Missionary Ridge, Thomas Wood was elated. Abandoned enemy equipment and captured cannon littered the crest as far as he could see. Riding up to some of his soldiers, he laughed and shouted, Men, I'll have you court-martialed. You were ordered to take the rifle pits at the foot of the ridge, and here you've got the ridge itself and all of Bragg's artillery. On Orchard Knob, Ulysses S. Grant, George Thomas, and the others had watched, spellbound, as the great drama had unfolded before them. Assistant Secretary of War Charles Dana, whose ceaseless vilification of Rosecrans had undermined that general and led directly to Grant's arrival, was now beside himself with joy. Dana lost no time in wiring Washington, saying, Glory to God, the day is decisively ours. Missionary Ridge has just been carried by a magnificent charge of Thomas's troops. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is a back issue of Blue and Gray Magazine. The content of Blue and Gray Magazine, Volume 29, Issue Number 6, from back in 2013, was dedicated to covering the battle from Missionary Ridge and contains a great set of maps that show each stage of the fighting. And besides the first-rate maps, the write-up is by Wiley Sword, so it's also excellent. To find a complete list of all of our book recommendations, you can head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information on joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon. Just yesterday, we released members episode number 147, so we hope the folks in the Strawfoot Brigade enjoy listening to that, including our newest members, Denville M. and Fran S. And we thank all the members for their support of the podcast. We also thank Spiritwood Music for their kind permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music you hear at the start and at the end of each show. And that's it for this show. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time when we'll start to wrap up the Chattanooga story arc. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.